You are listening to a Victory Alabang podcast. Jesus is our ultimate treasure. Discover what Jesus said about selling our possession in this message by Pastor Aryam Arkans. We are on our second week on our series, I Wish Jesus Didn't Say That. Can we just say that title of this message? I Wish Jesus Didn't Say That. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is actually uh, talking about some of the hard uh, sayings or difficult teachings and commands of Christ. In fact, there are some things in the Bible that we all love. You know, there are some promises that you probably memorize and claim. You know, uh, promises on blessing, promises on provision, promises on love, promises on I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? How many of you know that word and like that promise? I will never leave you nor forsake you. But there are some things in the Bible that are rather controversial and a bit difficult to understand and comprehend. And sometimes, you know, our attitude when we read those words is this. I wish Jesus didn't have to say that or didn't have to include that in His command. But how many of you know that Jesus came here not to abolish the law but to fulfill every word in the commandments that's found in Matthew chapter 5? And so, just to give us an overview, we started last week, we talked about um, loving our enemies. Basically, this is a series on lordship. You know, when you talk about lordship, Jesus is Lord and not me. Everybody say, Jesus is Lord and not me. Turn to the person beside you and say, Jesus is Lord and not you. Right? What does it mean to be Jesus, to make Jesus the Lord of our life? It means that He is the ruler. He is the one who calls the shots. He is the master. He is the one who guides us. We submit to His authority. And we are not the boss. He is the boss. Amen. So sometimes the things that we are going through are the, exactly the things that we need to hear, especially from, from the Word. And so as I was saying earlier, last week we talked about loving your enemies. How many of you have started loving your enemies? You know, some practical things. Of course, we talked about Jesus, you know, uh, teaching this, that we are to pray for them. We are to bless them. We are to do good to those who persecute you. And how many of you know that sometimes it is hard to do that? You know, you pray for them and you wish that they would be eliminated from this planet, right? But that's not the kind of prayer that we need to pray for them. It's really a prayer of blessing, a prayer of peace, a prayer of reconciliation. And I really believe that the reason why God wants us to treat our enemies well is because, as we have heard last Sunday in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we used to be God's enemies. How many of you know that you and I were enemies of God before? That because of the work of Christ on the cross, we were reconciled back to Him. And now we are no longer enemies. We're not just friends. We're children of God. Amen. How many of you are thankful to the Lord for that? Uh, Today we're going to be talking about another very controversial topic, which is sell all you have. How many of you are into sales? Okay. You're probably into sales and you're you're real estate or direct marketing, you know, selling all you have. It's a bit different from selling your inventory. Okay, so we're going to be looking at that today. Next week is another hard topic. We're going to be talking about hate your family. Did Jesus really say that? Did he really say that in Scripture to actually hate our mother, father, brother, sister? Okay? We're going to talk about that next week. And the last uh, is, you will be persecuted. Tell the person beside you, you will be persecuted. 
Are you excited? Okay. So today we're going to be focusing on selling all you have. Sell all you have. Sometimes this can be a very misunderstood verse. It is quite controversial. Sometimes it is too radical. This is hardcore lordship. And, so, and many times we would probably go back to the first, you know, how it seems that loving your enemies is probably easier than selling all you have. Lord, how I wish that you stopped there in loving my enemies. I'm fine with that already. I mean, I heard of the message last week and I'm willing to obey you, but now you're t- talking about another item which is selling all you have because the reality is many of us think about these things every single day. I'm talking about money. How many of you think about money? You know, we, we have... How many of you have needs? We all have needs. We all have, we all have wants. We, you know, we, we pray for things. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, how many of you know that part of God's blessing is His provision? In fact, in the, if, you are a, if you are a Jew, part of your understanding of God's blessing is that you will be blessed in the country, blessed in the city, that you will be a lender to many and you will be borrowing from none, that you will be the head and not the tail, that in terms of finances, that you'll have plenty. And sometimes the mindset is, you know, many of the different mindsets that we have is, you know, how I wish I have more. You know, the worldly mindset is, money makes the world go round. You know, there's uh, you know different songs that are sang about money, 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 money. Right? Of course, you don't want to look at that. Maybe this is a better view. Okay? <laughs> you know, there's a Tagalog saying that says, "Buti pa ang pera may tao, ang tao walang pera." You know, you know, it's you know, money has people printed on it, but sometimes people don't have. Cash. But is it really money that is the answer to everything? Does money make people happy? Does having money really satisfy us? Or is it the opposite? You know, there's this particular businessman, who's a German businessman. His name is Adolf Merkel. And he basically is a founder of a pharmaceutical company. He is part of a cement business. He's also invested in uh, car manufacturing. In fact, in 2007, his net worth was $12.8 billion. He's actually, I think, number 44 richest person in the world in 2007. But in 2008, he lost about $3.6 million by December, which, which shrank actually his net worth to about $9.2 billion. How many of you know that is still a lot of money? But because of depression, one month later, January of 2009, he committed suicide by throwing himself in front of a train because of the money that he lost. What a sad story of a person who's seemingly still rich, but yet maybe because his identity and his significance and his, you know, his security is probably in this thing called wealth and money. That's why if he lost, when he lost some, he felt that there's no more hope and that he is a failure. 
We're going to be looking at a scripture this morning, really a, almost like a gold standard when you talk about money. And this is a story of a man that had an encounter with Christ and how Jesus basically exposed you know, what is in his heart. A seemingly good guy. You know, maybe just like many of us here, and I'd like us to stand. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 18, from verses 18 to 27. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Verse 21. All these. Everybody say all these. All these I have kept since I was a boy. He said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Everybody say one thing. Sell everything you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Can we read this last verse? Verse 27. But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Though we open up our hearts and our ears to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. Lord, just reading this text sometimes can bring shiver to our whole being. But we thank you, Lord God, that you're not after our wealth, but you're after our soul and our spirit, God. We thank you that you will minister to your saints this morning. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. How many of you would probably respond to this saying, after reading that text, I wish Jesus didn't say that. Did he really say that? Maybe some of you are questioning, is he anti-rich? And that's the wrong perception sometimes of people who are reading this text and they don't understand what the meaning of this text is and the significance of why he actually met that man and spoke these words to him. You know, many topics that we preach on, um, you know, from the pulpit normally have a baseline passage. And the baseline passage, there's one scripture that normally sets as the gold standard of that particular topic. So, for example, you know, if you are talking about faith, what is normally used as a gold standard of faith is what? Hebrews chapter 11. It is also known as the Hall of Faith. You'll actually see that in that particular chapter, all the people who walk in faith are written there. Now, when you talk about the passage that is the gold standard on the topic of love, what do you remember? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? 
So that's the, like the gold standard of that particular topic. When you're talking about a virtuous woman in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what do you remember? Proverbs 31. Now, if you're above that standard, you're probably reading Proverbs 35.5, right? Or, you know, lagpaskapa, di ba? But, you know, when you talk about finances and we're talking about possessions and money, this is the gold standard. This is kind of like what Jesus is talking about when, excuse me, when there's a topic that is, you know, particularly about possession and wealth. Thank you. Excuse me. It's so refreshing. But anyway, so thank you. So that is like the gold standard of wealth. You know, here we actually see the, that there are some things that Jesus want to, wanted to reveal in the heart of that particular man during that time. And even to the readers, who we are who's reading this particular passage in the 21st century. Who is this guy? The rich young ruler. I mean, what is he? I mean, just looking at the credential of this particular guy, he is actually an impressive man, right? I mean, just looking at the text we've just read. One, he is rich. You know, he, he probably owned a lot of camels or horses during that time. He's rich. Pretty impressive. Secondly, he's, he's a young man. Okay. Third, he's a ruler. You know, I'm not really sure what political party he is, but somehow the Bible says he's a ruler. In fact, you would find parallel passages of this uh, story from Luke chapter 18. You would actually go and uh, visit Matthew chapter 19 and even Mark 10, having the same kind of story but a different perspective. You know, Matthew, we've... uh, read from Matthew last week. And, you know, Matthew is writing normally to a, an audience of Jewish believers. That was the audience of Matthew. Now, this particular text we've read in Luke, Luke is now writing an audience of unbelievers. Sorry, Gentile believers, rather. You know, not Jews, but Gentile. But he's explaining the gospel to them from that particular perspective. So in here, we can see that this young man is not only rich, he's not only a young man, he is a ruler, he is influential. Can you imagine the clout that this guy had? And lastly, he is religious. I mean, somehow you'd find out that in this particular story that this guy had done things since he was a young boy observing the commands of God. In fact, Maybe some of the Jewish moms would like this man to be the husband of their daughters. Maybe some of us here are praying for this kind of a guy. Right? Maybe if you're a single woman here, Now these are the three M's that you're praying for, like Mayaman, Mabait, Madaling Mamatay, Mayaman, Mabait, Makadios. There's a lot of things that we can actually look 
in here and somehow, wow, this particular guy is a good role model in society. But yet, Jesus is exposing something in his heart. In fact, in verse 18, when he approached Jesus, this is the very question that he had. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's probably heard of Jesus. He's probably heard of the, you know, some, somehow Jesus is becoming popular already. That he is a, not only a teacher of the law, but he is one who taught with authority and one who does miracles. He probably heard about him healing the sick already and, you know, uh, multiplying the bread and feeding 5,000 and another occasion feeding 4,000. And so, in this particular case, he was the one who initiated the meeting with the Lord. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is in Luke chapter 18. In fact, in the parallel verse in Matthew chapter 19, it says, and behold. Everybody say, and behold. Matthew actually describes a vivid amazement of the entry of this man. Maybe because of his authority and maybe, you know, who he was during that time. He was just surprised that this guy would actually come to the Lord. And behold, a man came up to him saying. And then in the book of Mark, another parallel scripture, it says, As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. He didn't just go to Jesus. He was running towards Jesus and he actually knelt before Christ. I mean, can you imagine the posture of humility of this guy? Wanting to find out, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? I mean, have we actually gone to that point of desperation, of meeting God, of knowing Him, of really, you know, somehow answering some of the questions that we have in our minds and in our heart. He said, good teacher, what must I do? You know, this word good teacher is actually a recognition of the deity of Jesus. You know, first, no Middle Eastern man would do such a thing to run to a rabbi and actually would kneel before him. Secondly, when you acknowledge that someone is good, they don't call a rabbi good. No rabbi, you know, during that time in the first century uh, era, would actually be addressed as someone who's good. That's why Jesus said, he actually pointed out that, you know, there's no one good except God. He quickly shifted the focus on, you know, if you're saying I'm good, then you're probably hitting on a nerve. You're probably acknowledging that I am God. That is what's happening here, that somehow this young man is seeing that there's something about Jesus that's different. It is actually near the kingdom. He's right there at the verge of understanding what it is, Lord, I want to be saved, I want to have eternal life. You know, he's done all these religious things in the past, and yet parang, there's something missing. Have you ever felt that way? And sometimes after doing all the stuff, you know, all these things is not enough. And maybe some of us have grown up in a religious uh, setting. You know, many of us probably are, you know, very prayerful. You know, you probably attended church regularly, even as a young person. 
You know, maybe you even went to a strict Catholic school, you know. But yet, despite all these external things, it seems like there's something missing about what I'm doing. In fact, this particular word, good, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that actually is equivalent to God. So when you say good, what you're saying is, if you're a rabbi, or sorry, if you're a Jew, you're saying that you are God. So when he addressed Jesus as good teacher, somehow he's acknowledging that there's something about him. I want to go to you and learn from you. Maybe you can point to me the way. In fact, this is actually the same kind of encounter that Jesus had in John chapter 3 when he met with Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, the Pharisee? One time in uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus went up to Jesus secretly and he asked, what must I do to have eternal life? Similarly, this rich young ruler went to Jesus and actually asked that same question. And so Jesus, when he was asked, what must I do to have eternal life? He answered, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All this I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Basically, if you notice the commandments, these are all the horizontal commandments. These are the commandments that you do to your neighbor. So when you talk about him being a good person, being kind to others, he is that person. Jesus didn't really yet on the issue of the first set of commandments, which is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He focused on the second part of the commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Are you getting it this morning? If you look at the Ten Commandments, there are two sets of, you know, it's like two parts, not two sets, two parts in the commandment. First is like the vertical commandment. This speaks about our relationship with God. Loving the Lord your God. You shall have no idols. You shall, have, you, know, uh, make, you shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. It's basically directed towards God. The second part from commandment 5 to commandment number 10 are all the relational commandments. That's why when someone, remember this, when someone went to Jesus, what is the greatest command there is? Jesus summed up the whole law by saying two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Remember that? So here we can see that it's a basic summary there. And yet when Jesus identified some of the things that this guy was talking about, he said, okay, if you want to have eternal life, follow the commandments. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Didn't you notice that Jesus actually left out the last commandment? Do not covet. Because that is exactly what that guy was probably facing at that time because of the greed in his heart. You know, to covet means to have a strong desire for other people's possession and property. He probably had, you know, a goal that nobody in my particular town or city would actually be richer than me. You know, maybe his life's desire is to be the richest guy in the whole of Jerusalem. We don't know that, but somehow Jesus left that particular thing out. 
Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife and goods, right? In Tagalog, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, okay? He actually left out these things. He may have passed the other five, but left out the first five, which is important. And somehow, the last one that points to where his heart is having a problem. Basically, God wanted, Jesus wanted to say to this young man, you shall have no other gods before me. It is clear to say that this probably this young man, when God, when Jesus said, you shall sell all your possession, definitely that particular thing in the heart of this guy is his God. It's his idol. Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing. Yeah, you've observed all these commandments, but you still lack one thing. In fact, this particular command or saying of Jesus is not even found in the Ten Commandments. When Jesus said, sell everything. Everybody say, sell everything. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You know, this is probably one of the most misunderstood scriptures that we have. We probably think that Jesus is espousing on poverty in this particular case, which I don't think he is. How many of you know that Jesus is not you know, really teaching on you should actually be poor so that you can be close to him? You know, some of the wrong belief or mindset of people or religious people is somehow they feel like if I don't have anything, I'm closer to God. I need to sacrifice and I have to get, uh, you know, uh, make a vow of poverty in order for me to be able to be close to God. Not necessarily. There are people who are poor who are not close to God. There are people who are poor who are close to God and there are also people who are rich that are close to God. Basically what this verse is saying is this is not a, you know, one verse for all believer kind of a command. This particular verse was being addressed to this young ruler because they, obviously this God of this young ruler was his wealth. My question for us today is, who is our God? What is that one thing that we have that may actually be hindering us from our relationship with God. You know, it's quite obvious that sometimes we would say, Lord, you know, I tithe, you know, I, I give my, my, my offerings to you. But I guess the real acid test of this particular verse is when we lose something, how do we respond to that thing? I believe God is not against us having possessions. But He is against possession having us. And if you can't even let go of anything, it means that that particular thing owns you. And you don't own that. 
Are we here this morning? I wish Jesus didn't say this. It's hard. It's tough. We have practical applications on this every single day. You know, for years we've been praying for a better car. And we've used a small car that we actually gave a name to already. Bumblebee. And that car served us well. You know, this small car can actually fit about three, but we can actually pack about six. Us five in the family plus a maid, kulang na lang magkapalita kami ng mga muka. And it's so tight and it's so small that somehow we are so close. Me and my wife, every time I drive, I actually can feel her elbow as I drive. So we've prayed for a better car and, you know, somehow God blessed us with a, another car, a bigger car. So I kind of prophesied on that particular, from Bumblebee, you will be Optimus Prime. And so, you know, it's, so, you know, it's now a bigger car. But I remember when I was driving this new car, I said, there are rules in the car, I told my family. No one is to eat in the car. How many of you are familiar with that particular rule? That is good for a month. But anyway, if you have small kids, I mean, how can you stop them from eating French fries? But anyway, so I thought I could actually prevent them from, you know, doing, you know, dirtying the car. So it was kind, kind of obvious that somehow the priority went a bit for the car than for the family. And I was cleaning that car almost every day. I would do wax in, wax out. Wax in, wax out. It's colored black. It almost became white because of, you know, consistent buffing. But I remember one time when I was driving from the province, I was actually, uh, I think I was running about 100 kilometers per hour. And I was really just careful with my drive, but that's 100. Okay? So in the, in the highway, and lo and behold, a small stone went flying from another jeepney, went straight to the hood, into the windshield. It didn't crack, but I felt it. I heard the sound, and I said, Lord, somehow my life flashed before me. And I said, what happened, God? I guess God is just checking on me and said, does this car own you or do you own this car? You know, the best way for us to be able to check if we own something is our ability to, be, to give that thing. Of course, I'm not going to give it today, okay? <laughs> Unless the Lord tells me. But we have this, you know, we have this stories that we have actually every day in our life, you know. Somehow we think that we can actually have, be in control of our wealth, but the moment our wealth starts controlling us, then that's where the problem lies. In fact, in Mark chapter 10 verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, he actually loved him. He was not there to punish him. He was not there to give him, give him a hard time. He actually looked at this guy and he loved him. He took pity on him because he's lost. You know, he wanted to invite him to be near him, but yet he could not see 
the whole point what Jesus was talking about. He loved the young man despite his flaws and despite his idolatry. And he said to him, you lack one thing. And then he said, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you have treasures in heaven, and then come, follow me. In fact, this come, follow me is an invitation, the same kind of invitation that he gave in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, to the original disciples. When he spoke to Andrew and Peter, during that time, he was called the first disciple, he said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You know how they responded? Immediately, they left their nets and their boats and followed Jesus. They didn't care. Because they knew for a fact that we're following someone who can actually take care of our needs. And this is not the source of my wealth. Amen. But this particular guy could not even let go of this wealth. Obviously, that was his God. My question for us this morning is, what is your one thing? Is that wealth? What is one thing that actually replaces God in our hearts? Matthew chapter 6 talks about two masters. He said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you, either you love the one or hate the other or despise the one or be devoted to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's either or. Money can actually have the power to become our master. Yes, that is true for this young man. But maybe different for some of us. Maybe this is true. Yes, money can actually be a God. Or maybe it can be power if you're maybe a politician. Or maybe if you're a popular person, maybe it's fame. Or maybe it's your boyfriend. What is that one thing that can actually hinder you from your relationship with God? It can be a girlfriend. It can be your career. It can be your work. It can be your family. It can be your wife. It can be your husband. It can be your children. The nice things in life can actually hinder us from walking with God if we're not careful. The things that are blessings in the eyes of God, when you hang on to it dearly, can actually be transformed into a master and an idol and a replacement of God in our hearts. My question for us this morning is, do we have a one thing that God is pointing at us today that is hindering us from coming to Him and following Jesus. Basically, this word, sell all you have and give to the poor and then follow me, is a particular command specific for this rich young ruler. But is, is it possible for us to be in the same boat and plight of this rich young ruler? Luke chapter 18, verse, 18, verse 23, it says, But when he heard these things, he became very sad. Everybody say, very sad. For he was not just rich. He was extremely rich. Can you imagine, going back to the story of that German guy, if Jesus were to tell him, sell everything you have, the $9.2 billion property and assets, give everything to the poor and follow me. That's kind of like that. Extremely wealthy, extremely rich. In fact, this particular word, very sad, is likened to the same emotion that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was facing his 
imminent death on the cross, he was also saying, my God, can this cup be taken away from me? And he felt sad to the point of dripping blood all over his body to the point of death. That was the same sadness that this rich young ruler felt as Jesus was asking this one thing. What is our one thing? Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow, talaga ba? What about us? who are going to Akasha. Look at the person beside you and tell that person, you are rich. But you're going to heaven, huh? Samba tayo. I mean, what does this scripture mean? How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, you know, when, when we went to Israel, we asked the professor, because according to some studies, you know, there is such a place in Israel that's called Eye of the Needle, where camels can actually go through if they unburden themselves and take off the load from their back. And the only way that they can actually go through that tunnel is when they actually kneel down and walk through that small hole. But the reality is it's just a myth. There's no such place. What this is actually saying is it is really virtually impossible for a rich man the comparison is, if a rich man is to go to heaven, it's kind of like, have you seen a camel? In movies, not here. Have you seen an eye of the needle? I mean, how can a camel fit an eye of the needle? It's impossible. That's how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's why when they said, this is impossible. Yes, it is impossible with man. But how many of you know that nothing is impossible with God? Amen. So he is not pre-qualifying or, you know, saying that if you're rich, you go to this line, you're going to hell. And if you're middle class, you're going to purgatory. If you're poor, you're going straight to heaven. You know, he's not saying that. I hope we hear the scripture this morning. In fact, another paraphrased version is this. How hard it is for a person who is so busy and focuses with the affairs, events, and business of this world that accumulates money to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes you can actually be too busy with our worldly affairs that we forget that the most important thing in this life is not the accumulation of wealth, but actually seeking God. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to us as well. This is the paradox of the kingdom. He who seeks his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Somehow I hope that we can actually learn from this truth. First Timothy chapter 6 and the Apostle Paul Basically emphasize what Jesus was teaching. But if we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a sense, uh, into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
Verse 10. This is a familiar text. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, or in other translation, NIV, with many griefs. I mean, this, the Apostle Paul was addressing some of the problems of the first century believers that even those who were Christians have wandered away from their faith because of a pursuit of wealth. And they missed out on the real purpose why wealth is given to us for the fir- in the first place. How many of you know that there's nothing wrong with wealth? Come on now. Nothing wrong with wealth. But I hope that we get to see that wealth has a purpose. God wants to use wealth to advance His kingdom. Those who heard it uh, ask, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. How then can we be saved? It is only through the work of God in our lives. It is not by following the commandments that can actually bring us to Him. In fact, it is only by following Jesus. That's why Jesus said to this guy, follow me. Following Jesus and receiving His finished work on the cross is the only way that any person can be saved. In other words, true wealth is the treasure that we have in Christ. So in application, what do we do now as believers? You know, I believe God still wants to prosper people. You know, I believe that God wants to bless us. God wants to provide for our needs. But we need to realize that there's a purpose for that. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in the same chapter, the Apostle Paul continued the, you know, the encouragement of the believers. And he said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. Everybody say, be generous and ready to share. The purpose of wealth really is so that we can actually be a blessing to many. You know, when God gave a blessing to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, He said, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to many nations. The blessing of God can actually be enjoyed as we also become part of the channel of blessing that God has for others. In verse 19, it says, Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, there's actually an, you know, uh, a better rich man in the Old Testament. Better one than this rich young ruler, and his name was Job. How many are familiar with the story of Job? We don't really have to read this, but on your free time, just go and read it. In Job chapter 1, you will find out that in the first three verses, it gives us the bio data of Job. He's someone who is blameless, who's upright. He feared God and he hates evil. That's his first identity. His identity was found in God, not in his possession. His second one was he actually had sons and daughters, and only in verse 3 was it said that he was actually the owner of many cattle. The, the, you know, 
And eventually, we know the story. In one, in one day, everything was wiped out. At the end of chapter 1, we will find Job losing everything, all his sons and daughters, all his businesses, and yet he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. At the end of his life, he still was able to bless the Lord. And because of that particular faithfulness, we know the story. At the end of Job, a whole book was written about him. He actually received twice the amount of riches and beautiful children at the end of his life. Because money was not his God. God wants to bless his people. I wish Jesus didn't say, sell all you have. But I'm glad Jesus said, sell all you have. Because in Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I believe this particular passage talks about the greatest rich young ruler of all times. He was willing to give up everything he had in order to make us rich and be part of the kingdom of God. And my last scripture, as I come to a close, I'd like to ask the music team to join me here on stage. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, For he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with, gracious, with him graciously give us all things. I believe God wants to give everything that we need as long as we know the right priority. That Jesus is the Lord of our life. Jesus is the Lord of our finances. We know exactly what the purpose of our wealth is. And that we can actually just live a life that is a blessing to many. We hope you were inspired by that message. Listen to more podcasts from our website at www.victoryalabang.org and in the Victory Alabang app. Thank you and stay connected.